Hi, it's Niall here. Just wanted to make a quick request before today's episode. The Weekend University's mission is to make the best minds and ideas in psychology more accessible so that you can use the knowledge to improve your quality of life. We release pretty much all of our content for free and don't run any ads during the show. That said, we'd love to expand our reach and get the knowledge shared by our speakers into the hands of more people so that they can benefit too. So, if you're in the mood for doing a random act of kindness today and helping others to improve their lives in the process, it would make a huge difference if you could take just 30 seconds and leave a short review on your favourite podcast provider, whether that's iTunes, Stitcher or Spotify. In addition, we'll pick one review each month and that person will get a free ticket to your monthly online conference, which usually costs around £50. Thank you for your time, and I hope you enjoy the show. Okay, everybody, welcome back to our third and final session today. It's from uh, Professor Nancy Segal from the University of Fullerton in California, or California State University in Fullerton, sorry. Um, So Professor Segal is Professor of Psychology and Director of the Twin Study Center at California State University in Fullerton. She is a fraternal twin herself and has authored over 250 articles and six books on twins. Her most recent book, Deliberately Divided, provides the first in-depth exploration of the New York City adoption agency that separated twins and triplets at birth in the 1960s, and the controversial and disturbing study that tracked the children's development while never telling their adoptive parents that they were raising a singleton twin. Dr. Segal's 2012 book, Born Together, Reared Apart, won the 2013 William James Book Award from the American Psychological Association. She was a speaker at a TED event in California in 2017 and has delivered addresses at the Human Behavior and Evolution Society in Amsterdam in 2018 and the International Society for the Study of Individual Differences in Florence in 2019. Dr. Segal was also invited to participate in a debate on parenting organized by Intelligence Squared in New York City in 2019. Her work has been featured in numerous publications, including the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal and The Guardian. She's appeared on national and international television and radio programs, including The Today Show, 2020, Long Lost Lives, and NPR. Dr. Segal can be contacted via email at nsegal at fullerton.edu, and you can learn more about her work by visiting drnancysegaltwins.org. So Nancy, whenever you're ready, feel free to get started, and I'm really looking forward to this. Thank you so much for the introduction. Thank you, Nancy. Welcome, um, everybody. everybody else. We- and let's turn to my first slide. I need to explain something about the title to you. I took the liberty of changing nurture versus nature to nurture-nurture. I'm sorry, nature-nurture, because the two of them work together, and it's not as though we're pitting one against the other. And I added that subtitle, The Science Behind the Fascination, because twin studies are fascinating, but there is a real hard science behind them. So let's get started. Most people find twins interesting, but the interesting question is why? Well, twins are literary tricks as well as scientific treasures. It's interesting that we find twins first in the world of drama as opposed to the world of science. 
in the world of drama, we have the play Menachemi or the Twin Brothers by the Roman comic dramatist Plautus. We have Shakespeare's plays Twelfth Night and Comedy of Errors. And then we see twins featured more recently in plays by Kia Cawthron and Carol Churchill. Carol Churchill is a, a British playwright, as you probably know. And these were both based on human cloning we should do it. But twins are also scientific treasures in the form of twins who've been raised together and twins who've been raised apart. This is a very exciting time to be involved in twin research because of the many recent twin-related developments. The twinning rate has increased dramatically in Western nations from one in 60 infants in 1980 to one in 31 currently as of 2019. And we can talk more about that later as to why that occurred if you're interested. In 2005, it was reported that twin studies show that political attitudes have a partial genetic basis. We always assumed that they were something that came from the home. In 2005, it was shown that epigenetic profiles, that is the turning on and turning off of genes, are more alike in young identical twins and identical twins who spend time together than in fraternal twins or in twins who spend less time together. In 2015, it was shown that twin studies explain about 49% of the variation in most measured traits. And most recently, just a couple of months ago, it was shown that the epigenetic signatures on chromosomes can identify identical twins approximately 80% of the time. That's a fascinating finding with lots of implications that we can discuss later too, if you like. So I like to begin these lectures with a little discussion of twin types, because it's really more complicated than people realize. And I love this cartoon from Miss Peach. Linda and Lester are our twins, Mr. Carlson. By the way, what kind of twins are you? What do you mean, what kind are we? There are two kinds of twins, benevolent and malicious. Now, in fact, there are two kinds of twins, but they take the form of identical or monozygotic twins and fraternal or dizygotic twins. The identical twins result when a single fertilized egg divides within the first 14 days after conception to form two genetically identical individuals. And sometimes those eggs go on to split again to form identical triplets or quadruplets. And you'll see some of those in a moment. Now fraternal twins can come in two varieties, the same sex or the opposite sex. And you can see that there's a wide range of resemblance, at least when it comes to physical characteristics, but also behavioral, when it comes to fraternal twins. I purposely chose these two to show you those extremes where the same sex twins, the two girls look dramatically different, but the fraternal opposite sex twins look a lot more like at least facially. Now, even within identical twins, you see some interesting variations. About 25% of identical twins show what we call mirror imaging effects. And you can see that if these little boys, the twin on your left has a clockwise direction of the hair world, but it's completely opposite in the other one. It used to be thought that these mirror image effects such as opposite eye dominance 
or opposite facial structure, opposite dentition, or opposite hand preference were due to late splitting, splitting more toward day 10, 11, 12 within that 14-day window. But that theory has been disputed lately, and people think it's now a function of these the splitting that throws off the usual cellular relationships among the developing zygotes or fertilized eggs. Now here's a variation on fraternal twins. Test shows that man fathered only one twin. Now, how does that happen? So some women will release two eggs at the same time. And there is a window of opportunity there for fertilization to happen, maybe four days. And if she should have sexual relations with two different men in that four day window, they can be fathered by two different individuals, which really makes the boys or the girls genetically half siblings. But we regard these as twins because it occurs naturally. And we call these super fecundated twins. You may have also heard of fraternal twins who result from fertilizations a month apart. And that has happened. And here what happens is that one egg is released, it's fertilized by sperm, and then in what would have been the next menstrual cycle, which is not supposed to happen, another egg is released, fertilized a month later, and the babies are born at the same time, but they are developmentally discrepant. We call that superfetation. In fact, both of these processes are assumed to be rare. I'm not so sure. And now we have a variation which results when twins come from mixed marriages. Here we have a Caucasian mother and a West Indian father who delivered these little girls who look dramatically alike, uh, dramatically different, I should say. People have called them the biracial twins. That's the new rage, the new label. I don't like it because both of these twins are equally biracial. It's just that in terms of their skin coloring, one got the genes from one parent that predominated and one got the other. And in fact, what's interesting is that these twins who come from the UK went on to have a second set of fraternal twin girls who showed the same skin tone differences. So let's talk about the logic of the twin design and how we go from twin studies to findings. So you typically compare the resemblance between identical twins and fraternal twins. Lots of pairs of identicals, lots of pairs of fraternal. And you can look at height. These identical twins are very closely matched. And the fraternal twins differ by four or five inches. Now, this is a rather humorous slide. I show it because these identical twins are so tall. I met them on the set of Good Morning America, one of our popular talk shows here in the US. And they have the title, the Guinness Book title, of being the tallest identical twins in the world. And they are. They're about 6'5 or 6'6. Six, six. I never felt so small. We're all standing on the same platform wearing the same uh, low-heeled shoes. So there are other twin designs that are also extremely informative. You can take a look at this one on the left, identical twins who differ in some way, what we call co-twin control. And these are natural differences. You can see that the twin on your left is much slimmer. She does not have that space between her teeth that her sister has. What you cannot see is that the twin on the right has breast cancer. And 
she did at the time she's no longer alive. But we can look at those identical twins who share disease predispositions and try to figure out what activates those genes in one twin and keeps them silent in the other. With co-twin control, we can also introduce experimental interventions. So for example, people have looked at drug efficacy by providing one twin with a placebo and the other twin with the drug. One of my favorites is twins and triplets raised apart. And here you see three identical triplets who were raised apart from birth and met by chance at the age of 19. And I was involved with the Minnesota study of twins raised apart for many years. And we did bring those three in. I've written a lot about them in my new book because they were part of that study that Niall mentioned. And uh, we can talk more about them. The beauty of twins and triplets raised apart is that they give you a pure estimate of genetic influence without quote unquote contamination from environmental exposures. Here is a pair of twins that I studied who were adopted apart from China. You know, there were many twin girls who were separated due to China's one child policy, which restricted urban families to one child and rural families to two between the years of, I think it was 2009 and 2015. And I was fortunate enough to know about these twins, to be asked by the BBC, got anything interesting? And so we flew the twin on the right. She and her family come from Norway. And we flew them to Sacramento where the other twin was living and they reunited at the age of six. And what was quite remarkable about them was that they did not speak the same language at the time. But if you saw them at play, it was as if they'd known each other all their lives. And that's a common theme that we see with identical twins raised apart that I will return to later. Here is a design that emerges when twins just do what comes naturally, when they marry and have children. So here, let's suppose that the twins are identical females, twin one and twin two, and they marry unrelated people and both have children. Because the twins share the same genes, the aunts become the genetic mothers, even though they did not bear the children or conceive them. Were the twins, they would be uncles, but genetic fathers. And because of that, the children share a genetically identical parent. They become not just legal cousins, but genetic half siblings. And these are enormously informative families that we can use to compare similarities in many, many different ways. And um, we also compare them to fraternal twin families, but they just yield the conventional aunt, uncle, niece, nephew relationships, but they're the, the important comparison. Here's a pair, a twin-like sibship that maybe some of you haven't thought about, but I was very excited about it when a mother brought it to my attention. These are same age unrelated siblings who were raised in the same home from a very early age and have very close birthdays. Now, why am I excited about virtual twins? Because virtual twins give us a pure estimate of environmental influence. They share their lives, their homes, their communities, just like twins would, but they are not in any way genetically related. The little girls form because one is adopted and one is not. The little girl on your left was the biological child. Her parents had had difficulty conceiving a second baby, so tried to adopt and ended up with both. And the little boys on your right 
are both adopted within a few months. There are some other rather exotic ways of getting virtual twins, which I can talk about a little bit later if people are interested. And finally, I come to an interesting kind of comparison that I've been using lately called unrelated lookalikes. So these are people who are not necessarily the same age, uh, but they are close enough and they look remarkably alike, even though they are not related. There is a Canadian photographer, Francois Brunel, who gathers these for reasons of interest. It's his hobby. And he and I were in touch and he allowed me to use some of these in my research. And what it does is it allows me to test a criticism of twin research. Some of our critics claim that identical twins are alike in personality because people treat them alike based on their appearance. And I always felt that was rather silly that instead people treat them alike because these people evoke similar responses from those around them. And I've been able to show that that is the case uh, with these unrelated lookalikes. So why study twins? Well, twins are informative and there's also a personal side to it. Uh, for me, I was interested in human nature and nature nurture questions from the minute I was born, I think. That's my twin sister, Anne, when we were four years old down there at the bottom and here we are during the adult years and we are quite different physically. She's four inches taller than I am, very curly hair. We, we share some family values, but our interests and, and talents are very, very different. We always traveled in different social circles. So I always was kind of jealous of those identicals who seemed to be so close, but um, I'm happy with my sister. We're, we're close and, and certainly very loyal family members. So let me provide you with a selected sampling of twin research. And we will begin with a landmark study that occurred in the 1960s, the Janine quadruplets. Now, Janine is not their real name. Janine means dire birth or dreadful gene. And their names fall into the letters of the National Institute of Mental Health, NIMH, Nora, Iris, Myra, and Hester. They came about at a very interesting juncture in American psychology and psychiatry because these four identical quads were all schizophrenic, although to different degrees of severity. And they caught the attention of Dr. David Rosenthal, who was a psychologist at NIMH, who brought them to the campus there for intensive study for three and a half years. I was very lucky as a grad student to be able to work on some of the follow-up data of these four. But it came at a time when there was a prevailing environmental emphasis on human behavior, largely a legacy of the Holocaust and the Nazi experiments, the civil rights movement, the women's movement, things of that sort. So it was really not popular to talk about genes. And yet genetic research did proceed, although somewhat more quietly. And it was hard to understand this particular set of quads without reference to genetic influence. Now, this is a, a study I did in 1982. It was my first independent study, my doctoral dissertation. And I was always fascinated with twin relationships. How is it that identical twins differ in their closeness, their social attraction than fraternal twins? And so I focused not on the similarity of twin A and twin B, but rather on the social interactional processes and outcomes that emerge when twins um, work together. So I had the twins work on a puzzle completion task. 
And those identical twins that you see there, and these are, by the way, stills from Super 8 films. You can see that Super 8 is really dating me, but that's okay, I don't mind. So these identical twins are working on the puzzle together. They are seated very closely together. Their hands are intertwined and they're kind of smiling. But you can see that with the fraternal twins, they're sitting far apart. One of them completely took the pieces of the puzzle to her side of the table, leaving the other one to look up at me and try to engage me in conversation. These are very typical of the trends that I saw in the samples of identical and fraternal twins that I studied. And I'll share a few more findings with you that came from these puzzle analyses. So we found that a higher number of identical twins and fraternal twins completed the puzzle successfully. And that's interesting because the twins were all carefully selected to be above average in intelligence and to be fairly similar in their abilities. We found that the placement of the puzzle was more equidistant between identicals and fraternals, and there was more balanced involvement between them. These findings were unrelated to the parents' beliefs about twin type, to the twins' perceived physical similarity, and to twin club membership. So I interpret these findings as suggesting that similar information processing strategies, similar temperament and personality styles are the kinds of things that lie behind good coworker relations. You know, all of you have jobs, some of you have more coworker contact than others, and you probably get along better with some people than others. And I think these are the reasons why. So what do the quantitative studies tell us? As we glance down the measured traits, we can look at the degree of genetic influence. And you can see that it varies from 0.9 for height to 0.5 for special mental abilities like verbal and spatial skills to personality traits such as extroversion or sociability, sexual orientation, vocational interests, and finally job satisfaction at point 30. Now, what do we mean by genetic influence? We're not saying at all that you can take a person's height or weight and slice them into a genetic or environmental component because those are inextricably intertwined in individuals. What we are saying is that if I were to measure height in a population, I would find individual differences person to person. Some people tall, some people short, some people in the middle. And 90% of that variation would be linked to the genetic differences between them. We call that heritability. And there is nothing magical about heritability. It can vary from, uh, from population to population based on measuring instruments, based on investigators and time of measurement. But the point is that many, many studies have been done along this line using different populations and different protocols and different investigators. And they converge pretty much on the same finding, which is what you need in good science. So we interpret these findings as follows. The genetic effects on behavior are pervasive, but they are somewhat trait specific. Everyone can improve, but we cannot all be the same. So when it comes to mental ability, I showed a genetic effect of about 50 to 70 percent. It's actually closer to 70 percent according to the more recent studies. Um, everybody can become better. They can improve their skills, but we can't all be the same. There are limits. Just like 
you know, it's, it's advised to read to children and sing to them, of course, but not all children will improve or enjoy that kind of activity as much as others. And finally, I think it's very important to keep in mind the differences are not deficits. I wish I had coined that phrase, but it was actually Dubchansky, the well-known evolutionary biologist from Columbia. But it's a very critical concept that just because one, say males excel somewhat in, in certain spatial skills and females excel somewhat in certain verbal skills, does that mean that one sex is better than the other? Of course not. The way I think about it is that it depends on the situation. If you're lost in a cave, maybe on average, you wanna have a male with you, or if you have to talk fast in a courtroom situation, maybe you want a female with you. But beyond that, there is no way to have a value judgment. And anybody who thinks that they can do that, I think is really misguided. So let's take a look at this cartoon, which I firmly believe was inspired by the Minnesota study of twins raised apart, a study that began in 1979 and lasted for 20 years by the late Charles Adams, who wrote, separated at birth, the Malaford twins meet accidentally. And you can see these identical twins seated outside the patent attorney's office with the same inventions on their laps and same tennis shoes and little glasses around their necks and beauty marks on their faces. And as we began to study the twins who received a lot of publicity in the media, they, the media focused on the similarities and we were intrigued by them as well, not expecting them to the degree that we saw. But nevertheless, there were definitely differences and we were aware of them almost immediately. Every twin pair was an individual as far as we were concerned. And you know, some of the identical twins in particular were concerned that once they met a twin, they would lose their, self, their sense of self, but that never happened. So the, how did the study begin? It began with the Jim twins. These Jim twins were born in the state of Ohio, separated at birth or close to birth, and raised by families in different Ohio cities. Both families were told that their, the twin of their adoptee had died. But when one of the mothers went to the courtroom to sign some papers, the clerk inadvertently said, oh, your twin's son, uh, your son's twin was adopted by this other family. So she told her son when he got older, but he was reluctant to search until he was 39. And they searched and found each other and had a long list of similarities ranging from their light blue Pontiacs to their nail biting habit, to their mixed headache syndrome, to even the names of their wives. And both used to like to scatter love letters around the house. I mean, these are amazing similarities and one can attribute them to coincidence or random chance, I don't. I think that finding these in identical twins gives us a whole way of looking at our own quirks and habits, which um, I find enormously fascinating. But at any rate, these twins attracted attention and suddenly the Minnesota study of twins raised apart was born. It was the brainchild of Dr. Thomas Bouchard, a psychology professor at the University of Minnesota, who had always wanted to do a study of twins raised apart but never knew how to find his twins. Well, the Jim twins helped him out with that one. The study took place largely at Elliott Hall, the psychology department at the University of Minnesota. And we were very lucky because they had an individual differences emphasis there with contributions from the late Dr. Irvin Gottesman, the late Dr. David Licken, both of whom who had done twin studies 
in the past. Dr. Alcatelligan, who studied personality in twin research. And we were lucky, the University of Minnesota is one of the few campuses that has its medical school right there. So we took advantage of Dr. Leonard Heston, psychiatrist who had done adoption studies and twin studies of homosexuality, and Dr. Elke Eckert, a psychiatry professor with a specialization in eating disorders. So it was a very, very comprehensive team, and I'm only showing you the main investigators. There were many, many others who participated from many, many disciplines, and then a whole um, group of graduate students and, and postdocs like myself. So from the Jim Twins to the Minnesota Study of Twins Raised Apart, we called it the MISTRA. Their striking similarities led to considerable press coverage and the identification of new reared apart pairs. We found them primarily through self-referrals, but also from referral, referrals from colleagues, adoption groups, and of course, the media. And if you look at this slide just briefly, you can see that in the beginning when we began, we were finding more twins. That tapered off a bit toward the end, and we had decided, oh, so wrongly, that we had discovered every English-speaking pair of twins in the world. But I can tell you that with the internet, I have kept track of so many more, and I've studied many of them as case reports. I'm fascinated by them. And uh, I think that if the internet had been then what it is today, I think we'd still be in business. We studied the twins uh, at the age of about 47, that's the mean age. There were 81 identical pairs reared apart, 56 fraternal twins raised apart, which ended up being 156 MZ individuals and 106 DZ individuals. The numbers don't add up exactly. In other words, if you double 81, you're gonna get 162. But the reason for that is that some people were in more than one pairs such as the triplets who were organized into three sets of two. And that happened with some fraternals as well. So they were studied at about age 42. You'll notice that the fraternals were studied significantly later than the identicals. Interestingly, the identicals, despite being more similar, were together for a shorter interval than were the fraternals. Now the age of reunion matches age of assessment with the fraternals being dis finding themselves later than the identicals. So two things you might want to think about that we can talk about later is that why are there more identicals? Because in the population, in natural twinning rates, which is what these represent prior to assisted reproductive technology, uh, there should be twice as many fraternals. And here we have the reverse. Also, why do we study identical twins sooner than fraternal twins? So keep those in mind, interesting questions. Let's look at the life histories of selected MZA and DZA twin pairs. These are the twins we label the firemen twins because they both were volunteer firefighters. Uh, both of them loved Budweiser beer. I don't know where his beer is right now, but they had this quirk of holding the beer with a pinky finger underneath. They both wore glasses. They both wore hats, but this hat is hiding his bald head, same as this one. They met when they were 31 through mistaken identity. This might be the most interesting pair, Jack and Oscar. Uh, they were born in Trinidad to a Jewish Romanian father and Catholic German mom. And 
the, the marriage soured when the boys were six months. So the Catholic mom took Oscar, this one here, with her back to Germany. This was the 30s, so it was the beginnings of the Nazi era, uh, of course, which, which grew. Um, Jack was raised Jewish in Trinidad. They met briefly in their 20s. It was a very cold reunion, didn't last very long, but they reunited in Minnesota in the early 40s to give it just one more go. And despite their many similarities in, in so many ways, the most interesting thing to emerge from them is that they knew that had they been switched, they both would have embraced the political and historical understandings that they currently despised. History and politics, the one question or the one area they avoided. These two twins grew up in different homes. Uh, the one on your left was raised in a rather religious Jewish home, the one on the right in a Christian home. And unlike the unrelated siblings they were raised with, both of these twins warmly embraced the religions they were raised with. And that was something that they understood completely when they met. There was some discussion of maybe we should change a religion to have the same one, but they both knew that had they done that, they would have lost respect for the other. These are the only fraternal twins we had to meet through mistaken identity. Aside from their similar faces, these dizygotic reared apart twins both suffer from ectodermal dysplasia, a condition of the hair and nails where the hair simply does not grow. And you can see that this is how they look, which attributed in part to their similarity. They met at the age of 25 when the twin on your left moved to another city in Vermont and everyone began calling her the wrong name, which caused her to investigate. And she met her twin in this way. By the way, we, sit, we think that this is an autosomal dominant trait because it appeared in their father. And this twin here on your right passed it on down to her two, two of her three children. And these are our New Zealand twins, Arrow and Iris. They were separated at birth. For a while, they held the Guinness Book record of being the twins who've been longest apart, 75 years. But they were just displaced, oh, maybe five years ago by a pair that I found, uh, Anne and Liz, who did not reunite till 78. And in fact, Anne was raised in London. They were both born in England, but one twin moved to the US and never knew how to find her sister until the one in England had a daughter who did a genealogical search and the twins are reunited. We studied them here in, in California and they were absolutely fascinating. So just to summarize the Minnesota study, we had 137 twins, 81 identical pairs, 56 fraternal, studied at about 43 years, but as young as 11, as old as 77. Their age of separation was 7.3 months on average, but ranged from birth to about 55 years. We would invite them to the university for an entire week of psychological and medical assessment. And on day one, we took unposed photographs. These are interesting. You can see that for the identical twins raised apart, with no instruction on our part, they stood in similar positions or held their hands in similar ways. Now, these are twins who just met sometimes recently or for the first time at the University of Minnesota. Um, these twins are standing similarly with their arms at the sides. These twins are both holding their arm, holding their wrist with their hand, but 
it's opposite. And these are in fact opposite handed twins. They grew up also on opposite sides of the Mississippi River, went to rival high schools and met when one put a letter into the newspaper. And these fraternal twins are standing in very, very different ways. Uh, the two genes here, uh, very different hand postures. One knew she was a twin, one did not. They met through the one who did not know and did a search. And these fraternal twins who grew up maybe a mile apart, but did not look alike, used to go to the same bars until one began to do a search for a twin and they were reunited. <clears throat> and this kind of recaps what you saw in the previous slide. This was taken on the set of a popular talk show host. I blurred out her, her face to hide identity, but you can see that at least for the twins in the front row, their feet are the same way, their hands are similarly positioned. And you know, all of us have certain postures or positions we prefer because they're comfortable based on how our bodies are put together. And I think that's the reason why these identical twins fall into similar positions the way that they do. So selective findings from the Mistra. And I should point out that these are findings from the 1990s to the present. We had such a treasure trove of data and some of it's still being analyzed. So uh, genetic influence is about 70, 75%. And the scores were unrelated to the degree of contact the twins had prior to the study, age of separation, age of reunion, adoptive parents' education, physical facilities in the home. Other traits showing genetic influence were personality, migraine headaches, diet, and whether you're a morning or evening person. Just pay attention to the top line here. The median correlation for personality traits across 11 scales did not differ between identical twins raised apart and together. This tells us that our personality similarity to our family members that we grow up with is due to our shared genes, not our shared environment. With the other 50% due to environmental effects that we experience apart from our family members, like taking a trip, reading an exciting book, winning the lottery, having an abusive experience, something different. Uh, a very important finding that I think challenges environmental explanations of personality development. <clears throat> and here I have plotted the IQ correlations from, see, uh, four different studies plus the Minnesota one. And you can see that despite different years, different investigators, different samples and different sample sizes and protocols, the correlations are enormously robust ranging from 0.64 to 0.78, with a mean, a mean correlation of 0.73. <clears throat> this is a finding you don't usually see in psychology, but it tells us that about three quarters of our general ability is influenced by genetic factors. And an interesting story behind this study comes from the editor of Science, Daniel Koshland. He had done a workshop with Dr. Bouchard in the early 80s, uh, wanting to know more about the study, and then when he became editor of science, he contacted Bouchard and said, I want a paper on intelligence findings in six weeks. And Bouchard said, I can't do it in six weeks. And Koshland said, do you know who you're talking to? And Bouchard said, yes, the editor of science, and we will have a paper for you in six weeks. And of course we did. The Minnesota study also included dental and periodontal studies. And you can see here that this twin undergoing a periodontal assessment 
is wearing a mask because the ratings were made by two independent investigators at the same time who had to be blind to her twin type to avoid biases. The two periodontists right here were absolutely shocked by their findings. You know, in periodontology in the 80s and early 90s, the thinking was largely that periodontal disease, plaque buildup, attachment loss, probing depth were a function of environment. When they ran the data, they kept on finding a 50% genetic influence. And these two really became pioneers in the field of periodontology. Dr. Michael Till, who was our dentist in residence, a pediatric dentist, by the way, so the twins sat in kind of cute surroundings during their assessments, but he found that, that cavities, uh, dental appearance, restorations, um, missing teeth, largely genetic effects. And we tend to think of those you know, in terms of diet and lifestyle, which clearly make a difference. Remember I said, we can all be the same, and we, we cannot be the same, but we can improve. We go to the dentist for dental care and medical care, and we can improve, but we can't all have perfect dental health. <clears throat> now, as I said, I was enormously interested in twin relationships. And so when I got to the University of Minnesota, I arrived there in 1982. There was no protocol in place to assess this. And so I developed one. So in my survey, which was quite comprehensive, I had four key questions. When I met my twin for the first time, I felt we would become closer than best friends, as close as best friends, on down to less close than most people I meet for the first time. And I repeated those questions for feelings of familiarity, also for the current time frame, you know, how do we feel now, and for their current feelings toward the adoptive siblings that they grew up with. And the results were quite amazing. 80% of the identicals felt closer than best friends or more familiar. That dropped down a bit for fraternals, but I was most excited and interested in the adopted siblings. Only 20 and 30% of the twins, both identical and fraternal, felt more familiar or, or as close as best friends toward the adopted siblings they raised with, which is kind of counterintuitive in a way. And yet I believe it was with the twins similar uh, perceptions of resemblance in personality, ability, temperament, things of that sort. And all those findings are compiled in Born Together, Reared Apart, the book that I wrote with Harvard University Press in 2012, which won the award for William James a Book Award from the American Psychological Association. Uh, virtual twins, again, are same age unrelated siblings. You saw this slide, the slide you did not see involves these doubly switched monozygotic reared apart twins who I studied in Columbia, South America. Now, they were switched at birth for unusual reasons when a twin from one pair had to go to the hospital with the other pair for medical purposes. But what happened was they were switched. So this twin here in the white shirt grew up with the twin in this blue shirt and the twin in the black shirt grew up with the twin in the green shirt. And this all unraveled when the twins began to live in the same city and somebody confused one for the other. I have a book about them called Accidental Brothers, but I mention them here because they were virtual twins, sort of extraordinaire, because they were the same age, they were different by one day, grew up from, together from birth, and yet they believed they were fraternal twins, okay? So that's why they were so different. Now. I mean, different in the sense of being a different type of fraternal, a virtual twin. 
And here are some sample findings that I compiled over the years when I had 113 pairs in the study and 169. So I studied them at about the age of 8.7 on average, but they ranged greatly from age four to 54. Their age difference was no more than three months on average, some very close to birth, some as much as nine months. And I set that as the top criteria because usually twins in the same classroom don't differ by nine months. If you compare the monozygotic reared apart, reared apart and reared together twins for IQ correlation, it's significantly above that for virtual twins. And same for their ability profile, 0.45 versus 0.07, their weight correlation and their height correlation. So people living apart or together who share their genes are much more alike than people raised together all their lives who share nothing but their environment. Um, these are the twin family studies I mentioned earlier. These identical women both married unrelated spouses and had children. And of course, the children are the genetic half-siblings and the two moms are the genetic mothers as well as their aunts. So I had 373 identical twins in total, 109 fraternal twins. These are individuals, or some came from intact pairs. And some sample questions were, oh, and I should mention that the study was about the aunt and uncle's relations with niece and nephews. So does it make a difference if you're an identical twin aunt and uncle or fraternal twin aunt and uncle? So sample questions were, I like taking care of this child. This child behaves like he or she could have been my child, or I generally think of this child as my own. And we found that identical twin aunts and uncles did express greater closeness to nieces and nephews than fraternal twin aunts and uncles although they don't do genetic calculations in their head, and twins with female co-twins express greater closeness to nieces and nephews than twins with male co-twins. And that could be because females are much more interested in families and do tend to track relationships more closely. So now I wanna spend the rest of this session, we have another maybe 11, 12, 13 minutes, talking about my most recent book, Deliberately Divided, inside the controversial study of twins and triplets raised apart, which was released by Roman and Littlefield, my publisher, just last month. It's a topic that does not go away. I learned about it in the fall of 1982, even though the study was ongoing in the 60s and 70s. I was at the University of Minnesota as a brand new postdoc, and I learned that there was to be a planned expose by CBS News Magazine 60 Minutes of this study. It was a study of twins and triplets who were separated at birth by the Louise Wise Adoption Agency, uh, primarily the work of Dr. Viola Bernard from Louise Wise and Dr. Peter Neubauer, who headed the Child Development Center of the Jewish Board of Guardians. So the twins were placed into foster care together for as much as six months and then placed in different adoptive families. And then researchers would come to the homes and track their development several times during their first year of life and then regularly but less frequently until they turned 12. The parents did not know they were adopting a twin child so the twins could never know that they were part of a pair. Why did I write this book? Because I knew about the study as early as 1982 but there were two documentary films that appeared, one in 2017 called The Twinning Reaction, and 2018, a British 
produced production called Three Identical Strangers. And the woman who did the twinning reaction said, I have all this material I've not used. I will give it to you. And given all the attention that the film was getting, that one plus particularly Identical Strangers got a lot more attention because it was released much more widely. And with, and both are superb films, by the way. Um, so there, there was an impetus for me to write the book. And people asked me, when are you going to write it? So I consulted the Columbia University archives. I conducted interviews with the investigators, colleagues. But I was able to get tape recordings with the original investigators. I talked to assistants. Some of them would not give me their name because they did not want unwanted attention. I had twins. I had every pair of twins who was studied, some who went public for the first time, twins' family members, as well as bioethicists and attorneys. And the book project that ended up emerging was deliberately divided inside the controversial study of twins and triplets adopted apart. Now, why would why did the investigators do it? They were excited by it because they thought that they would solve the nature-nurture question for good. They criticized the older studies for studying twins who reunited as adults. They wanted to study development in real time as it emerged. It's a fantastic idea, but it is completely unethical to my way of thinking. Let's look at it more closely. This was said to me by one of the separated twins who was unknowingly part of the study. Melanie said, I wish someone would start a support group. This is all so crazy. No one, not even us twins, understand the complexity. I think that's a perfect statement. So why did Dr. Bernard decide to just to separate the twins? Here is her justification. She claimed that the practice was supported by what she called the professional literature or the developmental literature of the time. She never, ever cited specific cases. And she did not publish widely on this. In fact, she didn't publish on the study at all. It's referenced briefly in certain chapters that she authored. Bernard also claimed that separate rearing was advantageous for twins' identity development, so they wouldn't be compared or be competing. And she argued that it would avoid parental overburdening. She argued that when and if twins should meet as adults, they'd be better prepared to chat to manage their relationship. What is really curious is that all the identical twins, and it was only the identicals who were studied, the fraternals were separated but not studied, which is bad science. All the identical twins were, were placed with a sibling older by three years. And this was to avoid being an only child. But they were not only children to begin with. And from what I've learned from parents who raise a single child, followed by a single child two or three years later, it's harder. You go from diapers to diapers. Whereas parents say with twins, yes, in the beginning there are challenges, but you're done with diapers. It's one hospital bill, it's an instant family, and the twins entertain one another, bring parents up. So there are lots of advantages to having twins. At any rate, they were excited, as I said, because this was to be the first prospective assessment of infant twins raised apart. And even families requesting twins were given just one newborn. Let me come back a moment to the first prospective assessment of infant twins raised apart. 
Now, I mentioned earlier that I'm doing a study of Chinese twins raised apart, and I'm getting them at very young ages, but not birth. And I'm following them prospectively. I've just completed my second assessment on them. But I'm doing this with the full consent of the families and the twins, many of whom seek me out. Now, was there justification for Bernard's thinking? As I said, Dr. Bernard never cited specific studies. It was not until 1986 that one of the colleagues on the project, who denies being a major colleague, but certainly was, Dr. Samuel Abrams, referenced five studies in a paper published in Psychoanalytic Study of the Child. It's a journal that is well read by child psychoanalysts, but not by the population of psychologists, psychiatrists at large. One reason why the study was hidden for so many years. I read all these five studies and they are either atypical case studies of single pairs or reviews. Some were on fraternal pairs, not on identicals. And there was also no mention of how they did zygosity diagnosis or twin type, something which is mandatory in any kind of psychological study or case report. And, uh, but these are not scientists. That's, that's the reason why these things are not done, but it affects our interpretation of the findings. Now, one of the studies that was cited in support of the practice by Dorothy Burlingham in 1952, it was a study, a case report on three identical twin pairs who were being raised temporarily at the Hampton Gardens um, nursery school that she had helped found with Anna Freud. But Dorothy Burlingham did not endorse separate rearing. In fact, if you go to one of her later chapters, she says, and this is interesting, she says that some parents raise twins apart. I don't know where she got that from. It makes me think she knew about the Neubauer study, although I could never confirm that as much as I tried. But Anna Freud was her collaborator and Anna Freud was a friend of Neubauer's, so I suspect that's how she might've known. But she said that every family, whether you've got siblings, twins, whatever, has situations that you deal with, you address. And with twins who might be competing too much or might be um, too different or whatever, you can have separate classrooms, you can dress them differently, lots of things you can do. Uh, and people weren't aware of that for years, but to rear them apart is really much more severe and leads to anger and resentment when twins are reunited. The study was unethical, but it was legal. We have a quote from Catherine Ross, a professor and lawyer at the George Washington University Law School. She and I both attended a session at the University of Virginia on the twinning reaction, science and deception. And there she made two great comments. The first, law and ethics are not always running along the same course. The law said, okay, ethics asked, are you out of your minds? These ideas are reiterated by Dr. Mark Mercurio, the director for the program of biomedical ethics at Yale University. I spoke with Mark Mercurio over the phone as I was writing the book. He said, behaviors such as violating people's privacy are inappropriate on the part of researchers because they are wrong. Just because laws do not make them illegal does not justify carrying out such activities. I wouldn't say that because you were within the rules, it was okay to me. There's something deeper than just following the rules. I agree with him completely. 
Now, I spoke with about 25 or so of the colleagues of primarily Dr. Neubauer, but also some of Dr. Bernard and some of her family members. And I, I found them somewhat through word of mouth, but also because there was a letter of protest sent by two of those friends to the Emmys, which are our TV awards, and to the Oscars, to the Academies, and to uh, CNN, who aired the film Three Identical Strangers, complaining about the film. I determined that the timing of the letter probably did not affect the award uh, decisions, and people I've spoken with in within the Academies confirmed that. Um, nevertheless, it's, it's something that is very bothersome to the directors and producers of those films. But at any rate, some of the defense that was taken was what I call the culture of the times argument. In other words, that past policies should be evaluated with reference to the past social and cultural climate of the times. I think we can understand them in that way. I think we cannot excuse them or justify them. So I don't buy them. And I come back to Dr. Mercurio's comment that just because you can do something does not mean that you should. And I would argue further that if the above can be justified, how do we explain the Me Too movement and other current efforts to challenge past activities we consider to be unacceptable? I'm going to leave you with the big questions that come out of this study and out of the book that I authored. Was it right or wrong to keep the twinship hidden from the families? Would parenting be compromised if the parents knew their child was a twin? How is it that prominent, respected professionals engage in questionable research? Dr. Neubauer said that genetics means less at the individual level. What does that mean? And do you agree? Would you go along with a mentor who wanted you to do research that you felt was not right? Remember, some of these assistants were grad students eager to make their name in the field, didn't feel that what they did was right, but went along anyway. And finally, was it correct to seal the records until 2065 at Yale? Who owns the data? In 1990, no, no, early, later than that, I'm sorry, 2005, I believe it was, the data records of the twins were placed at the Yale University archives not to be released until 2065. I have seen some of them because some of the twins working with lawyers who work pro bono on their behalf have been able to secure largely redacted records. Um, I share some of those in the book with the permission of the twins. And I will say that it is a very arduous process that has been put in place by the Jewish Board of, of Child and Family Services, the former Jewish Board of Guardians. Why these twins have to suffer so much to get what is rightfully theirs is a big question. Um, nobody at the Jewish Board of, of Children and Family Services was at all involved in this study. And so it seems to me that the thing to do would be to apologize and simply make the records available. 2065, we don't know who decided to put them there, although Newbear had colleagues there. But it's, it's shameful to think that the twins cannot get easy access, will probably be deceased in 2065, and that anybody who wants to can gain access. My closing thoughts are the twin research is an informative approach to studying human behavior. And every pair has a story, and the story has a message. Uh, in terms of my future in twin research, I continue to do interdisciplinary co collaborations, data collection on existing projects, 
the launch of new projects. And I have three new book proposals I'm working on, and one was just approved. I'll be working on a fascinating family here in California that combines twinship, gay marriage, and immigration law. And finally, this is my last slide before the break. I just want to acknowledge my family, friends, and colleagues, editors and publishers, my literary agent, my funding sources, my graphic artist, too, is an identical twin, and the twins and their families. So it's exactly 8.30, and I want to thank you all so much. We're going to take a five-minute break, and then I will return for a question and answer session. Hey, Nancy. Yeah. So thank you for a fascinating presentation and for the, just the amount you've condensed into such a short, uh, short period. It's incredible. So, so well done. And you finish right on, you finish right on time as well, which is pretty impressive. Um, <laughs> so we've had, we've had a few questions here. Um, I'll just, I'll just go through them and ask, and then you can, you can answer as, as you see fit. So the first one is from Angela and Angela asks, have you had investigations with twins on autism and ADHD? So I have not conducted those studies myself, but there is a vast literature on both of those conditions. And with autism in particular, there seems to be a genetic influence that is quite high uh, on the order of 70, 80%. With ADHD, there is also a genetic influence a lot of that comes from impulsivity, which is a genetically influenced characteristic. So there is a genetic effect there. I believe it's less than with autism. <clears throat> okay, great. Um, next one from Christine, Christine Vine, I think. Christine asks, given how damage, damaging it is to separate young children from care, caregivers at all, regardless of whether they are twins or not, are the studies reliable? And she adds a comment. I would have thought that the subjects of the research were able to access it, and if they don't know about it, they should be told that they had been studied and should be able to access the info now. For, for your information, my son is a data protection officer, but the USA might have different data protection le legislation. Okay, so I think the first part of the question asked about the harmfulness of being separated from a caretaker. And yes, this is a difficult situation that many of the twins say affects their current behavior, the idea that they were separated from a twin. Now, it's a tricky situation that because these twins did not know that they had a twin, but yet many of them were together in foster care and they did develop interactions. Um, let, me, let me define the twinning, the twinning reaction first, because that is when people show different types of interactional awareness of one another. So Dr. Bernard said, if twins in foster care did not develop this, they'd be separated. But if they did, they would not be. But that is completely wrong because looking at some of the archival material as I did, there were definitely twins in interaction by five or six months and they were still separated. So some of these twins and some of their parents feel that whatever problems these twins had could be related to that separation. These kids are pre-verbal, and so they don't know they had a twin, but they might have missed this little warm body or this, this thing that was lying next to them in the crib. We don't know that for sure. We do know that some of these twins as babies showed atypical behaviors like rocking behavior and um, different types of stereotypical sequences. Now, the second question was uh, the advisability of separating twins. Is that correct? 
was that the second part? Um, the second part was more just a comment, but it was around data protection and. Oh, yeah, about, I, a about the surprise that the data were, were were sequestered at Yale was that what it was? She she was saying um, she said I, I would have thought that the subjects of the research were able to access it, oh. and if they don't know about it, they should be told that they had been studied, and they should be I, able I, to access the info now. I agree with her completely, and in fact, there may be other pairs of twins who were separated that don't know they're twins. So you remember the identicals met many times, largely because of of confused identity. Whereas if fraternal twins are raised apart, they may never know unless they're told, right? Or unless they somehow get together through some extraordinary means. And so there may be fraternal twins out there who don't know that they're a twin. I agree with her that the twins should have access to the data and it's it boggles the mind to think that they can't get it. But in my book, I, I talk a great deal about that. I had access through the Columbia University archives to to the meetings that the investigators had, and they were very worried about lawsuits. They were very worried that, that people would take them to court and sue them for not telling them they were a twin or publishing information where they could be recognized. I think that's the reason they decided to do this. They say it was to protect the twins. I don't believe that for a minute. Okay, okay, interesting. Um, next question here is from Ben. Ben asks, how can scientists test that something like general intelligence is 0.5 to 0.7, for example, accounted for genetic inheritance? How do you get the, num how do you get the number of 0.7, for example, and what is the other 0.3 that is not accounted for? So we get the 0.7 by looking at the similarities of identical twins and fraternal twins. And you compute what's called an intraclass correlation, which is a special type of correlation. And then you can, there's a formula that allows you to remove the environmental component and leave you with the genetic one. So that's how we compute the heritability, uh, which is the 0.7. And of course, the good question, where's the 0.3 coming from? So that also comes from, from environmental effects. You know, we find, for example, that with reared apart twins, the twin who might've had the better education may score somewhat higher in the IQ test than the other twin. But nevertheless, these twins are still more alike each other than they are like members of other pairs where you get the genetic effect. Okay, okay, makes sense. Um, Amy asks, have you tested for the possibility of mirroring, which we often do to bond with others subconsciously? If people look like us, we may, we may be more likely to mirror them. And she also adds, I would imagine you could test this by taking the photos separately so one twin cannot see the other's body language. Has this been tested to see if they still exhibit the same body language? The, the study she proposes is an interesting one, and I don't know that it's been tried in exactly that way. Um, but in terms of attraction, you know, I come back to those unrelated lookalikes that I studied. And not only did I look at their similarity in personality and self-esteem, which was close to zero, but I also looked at their social relatedness. I had them rate their relatedness on the same scale as the twins. And aside from maybe an interesting attraction in the beginning because of their similarity, they did not go on to pursue close relationships. One or two did, but the vast majority did not. So my thinking is that what holds a relationship together is not your, your outside appearance, but it's your personality and your abilities and your temperaments, which of course are rooted in the brain. And if you don't have that social glue, it's not going to hold you together. 
fraternal twins raised apart share some of that. And I think that's why they have closer relationships than unrelated lookalikes. Very interesting. Now, Nancy, in all your years of researching this area, um, what would you say has surprised you the most? And is there anything that you've changed your mind on because of your, because of your, your investigations here? Yeah. So there, the thing that surprised me the most are the similarities and identical twins raised apart. I would have predicted greater difference. And I have to say, I was surprised, even among some of the young ones that I see, some of their habits, some of their comments, some of the ways they react to things. I, I'm much more surprised. And what this tells us is that all of us carve out our own environments, so to speak. We gravitate toward the people, places, and events that are compatible with who they are. Have I changed my thinking on things? A little bit, yes. Because I have always thought a lot about genetics. I mean, I never discounted the environment, but because I'm a fraternal twin raised together and saw how different we were, I couldn't help but embrace a genetic explanation. But the, the set of, of twins that changed my mind were those four boys from Colombia, the switched at birth twins. And what I didn't tell you was that one unrelated pair was raised in the lively cultural city of Bogota, the capital city, mm -hmm. and the other raised in a very remote village, which I visited without running water or bathrooms or anything. I mean, a, a three-room house that was just um, a three, a three-walled house, <laughs> really basic. And given what I knew from Minnesota, where we studied twins basically in middle-class homes, I expected the general ability scores to be closer, and they were not. So I realized that, that extreme environments do overwhelm individual differences. And so I've learned to maintain a much healthier respect for environmental inputs. Really interesting. Okay. Um, next one from Danny. How did the reports of closeness correlate with the expectations of those aspects twins had before the meeting? So I didn't do it exactly that way, Danny. What I did was I had the twins rate first, based on you know, your first meeting, how much do you expect to come into a close relationship? You know, how do you, do you think your relationship will evolve into a close one? And then I had them rate it in real time. And those correlations were fairly close. Cool. So, cool. so reality matched expectation to a large degree. Brilliant, okay. And just one more question here from Angela. Um, in schools, Teachers more often insist on putting twins in different classes. Do you advocate that? I don't advocate any policy. I advocate that these should all be handled on a case-by-case -case basis. I think that some twins are much better off apart, but I think many twins are much better off together, especially in the early years. If you think about it, we're asking twins to separate not just from the home, but from their twin, and that can be a very traumatic situation. What puzzles me too is that the educators and administrators who make these policies don't know much about twinship and they allow best friends to be together. And we know that best friends do better when they're together, they're more independent, they're not as clingy toward the teacher. So I don't understand why we don't allow twins that same privilege. I think that if identical twins go to the same classroom, they should sit, sit at different tables so they get exposed to different children. They should wear different t-shirts or have their hair in different ways or even name tags so that people call them by their proper name. But, but I really think that parents have to provide a lot more input. Parents want to, it's the administrators keeping them out. And every school year, I send off these standard letters to schools with some information explaining my position. 
I've even gone to court over some of these things because parents take them very, very seriously and want to do the best that they can for their child. Wow. Okay. Um, I'm just curious, have you got any general advice for parents um, who have got twins about just how best to raise them? Any sort of guidance you'd like to offer there? Well, I think that we can't talk about twins in general. We have to talk about identical or fraternal because they're and the male female because it's both very it's all very different situations. And I think that that parenting responsibilities for twins as well as non-twins are simply to identify your child's interests and talents and help them to become the best that they can be. And that's where I see parenting responsibilities at being so supreme. And similarly, if children show difficulties or weaknesses or concerns, try to help them manage that. I think that parents are uniquely positioned to do that. Now, when it comes to twins, um, I think that you need to, to at least, again, stress each situation. But I want to talk about the boy-girl twins for a minute because they tend to be overlooked. And they're so interesting because the girls tend to mature ahead of the boys, which is what girls do. And they tend to be uh, overbearing sometimes, maternal, uh, and they tend to, to monopolize the boys. The boys kind of appreciate it, but it may not be so good for their identity development. So in cases like that, you simply watch for it. And if it should happen, then you, you take the necessary interventions. I think that the best parents can do for raising twins is to be aware of some of the possibilities and just simply manage them as they go along and not anticipate them and not force identical twins to be different and not force fraternal twins to be alike. That, those would be some key rules, I suspect. Cool. Okay. Um, we've got one here from Joe. So Joe asks, can you speak a little to ghost, uh, ghost twin syndrome, um, basically where one, one of the twins dies in utero? Yeah. You call it the ghost twin syndrome. We call it the vanishing twin syndrome, but I know exactly what Joe means. And so what happens sometimes, and again, the frequency of this is wildly estimated from extremes to, high, to all over the place. A mother will be diagnosed with twins, and then in subsequent ultrasounds, only one baby will be present, only one fetus. And so this fetus may be absorbed by the existing fetus or maybe by the mother. And sometimes these things are identified later on in the form of tumors or um, uh, macerated fetuses or something of that sort. So it does happen. We don't know how often it is. It's been estimated that more people than they think start out as a twin, but we don't really know because we, we need to have these ultrasounds carefully conducted and documented. So we don't really know how many people start out as a twin. The natural twinning rate is one in 80 births or one in 40 people. So there you go. Okay. Okay. Um, well, that's all the questions, Nancy. So that's that's going to be the end of this, today's session. But just want to say thanks again for for a brilliant presentation. And you would, if people are interested in following up, um, you've provided your email address as well. Um, so will I add that to the chat, or how would you? Yeah, I, I, I'm very I'm very happy to have you add my email address to the chat. Please feel free to add my website address to the chat as well. And for people who wish to purchase books, I know people love signed books. If people want to send me their mailing address, I'm happy to send them a signed book plate that they can fasten inside the cover. 
great, great. Um, oh, Christina has got has just messaged me saying she's got a few comments. So, Christina, do you want to add your comments to the chat? Is that what you're is that what you're saying? Or, um, yeah. So that's Christina Sarcello. I can't pronounce your surname. Um, she's gonna just. Oh, she wants to be invited into the room. Okay, so she's got identical uh, twelve-year-old twins, and she's got a few comments she'd like to share with you, Nancy. So I'm going to invite Christina into the room. Of course. And you can have a, a dialogue. So Christina has been one of our members since pretty much since we started. So more than happy to to do this. Hi, Christina. Hello, Christina. Thank you. Thank you, Nancy. Thank you, Niall. Thank you very much. Hi. Do you want to put your camera on? Oh, um, sorry, I, it's not allowing me to just, is that okay? Yeah, no problem, no problem. Sorry about that. Um, okay, so uh, thank you for the presentation. I have twins myself, uh, identical twins. And um, there are quite a few interesting things. I, I, I enjoyed it all. I'm, of course, fascinated about twins as well. And um, the girls had... Um, they, I had um, a risk of twin to twin transfusion, so it was a very uh, difficult uh, pregnancy with um, ultrasounds every two to three weeks, which is not the, what usually happens with other pregnancies. So, uh, when the girls were born, uh, one thing that I noticed is because you mentioned the the, uh, the dental uh, studies. The girls until today, whenever they lose their, their baby teeth, it happens around the same time, the exact same tooth. It's, it's fascinating. And um, in terms of, of school, I know somebody asked about that as well. Um, their first year of secondary school, um, we decided that they would be separate, separate classes. And I'm not gonna say each, each case is a different case, of course. And one of the girls was okay being separate, the other one wasn't at all. She said she felt something was missing next to her right side. And in the womb, she was on the left. Hmm. So she said that, and she would put her, she, she, she put her hand around her right side. And she told me when, when her sister, when my sister is not here, Bella is not here, um, I feel something is missing on my side yeah so the following year they they came back to to the same class sorry and also um they used to go when when they 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 managed to get out of the cot uh, because they were sleeping separate beds separate cots and i would find them on the same one they used to go to each other's cot bed so not well, anymore christina all all the things you've been describing are very typical i've heard these from many many parents and it sounds like when the girls were put together in school, they did fine. So yeah, the the twin to twin transfusion syndrome affects um, some of the twins who share a placenta and it can be very serious. It can be not so serious, but it sounds in your case, they had to follow it carefully. We now mm -hmm. have methods for detecting it and for treating it, several methods for treating it, although they are somewhat controversial. I was at a twin Congress about a month ago and some different people were arguing for different different management programs, but at least it's something we can detect and something we do have some tools to address. Yes, um, thank you. And um, my final comment was about the, the ethical and unethical, uh, those studies. 
as a mother of twins, okay, I have a scientific background, but as a mother of twins, I think they're quite unethical um, looking at my girls and separating. Okay, each case is one case. I, I get, okay, I'm not going to say one size fits all. I agree with that. Perhaps certain situations, uh, if, if there is uh, you know, financial difficulties, there could be advantages. So I don't want to generalize it. But uh, I suppose from, from my side of the coin, watching my girls and when they were little before school into twins clubs and seeing other, other children, other twins, I've close connection with many twins uh, and their families. Uh, for me, it would be quite unethical to separate them, do not give them the opportunity to explore a relationship. Um, again, not one size fits all, but- let me, come let me come up in a minute. You know, I, I looked at all the reasons for separation in the Minnesota study and some of the previous ones. And sometimes it was done for financial reasons. Sometimes mm -hmm. the mother died in childbirth. Sometimes it was the stigma of being a single mother. But these were decisions that parents made on their own, decisions that were not made lightly. Sure. Now, again, you know, sometimes parents would go to adoption agencies there'd be two babies available. They only took one because they didn't want to. That, twins get separated for lots of reasons. The study that I referenced in my book, the Louise Wise Study Child Development Center Project, that is the only study of which I'm aware where twins were separated and studied like that. Yeah. We don't know which came first. The conventional wisdom always was that the, the separation policy was in place and then the research came later. But having gone through all this work, I'm not so convinced that that was the order of things. I'm somehow persuaded, although not completely yet, but I'm really thinking seriously that the idea came up because Neubauer had talked before about studying separated twins and it was easy to put that in place. New, uh, Bernard had separated other twins in the past. Uh, we don't really know why they were separated. There was a pair of male females separated in 47 and a pair of girls separated in 52 who were fraternal not studied but mm -hmm. that, that might have been for other reasons we don't know at any rate what i'm saying is that it's the only study where twins were separated as babies and studied and even though the adoption agency louise wise tried to solicit the cooperation of other agencies in new york city they all refused sure i see yes i understand that um of course, different situations, each situation is different and especially financial um, financial situation of each family. But I hope if studies happen that they are done because of certain situations, not simply to toy with, with the idea of studying um, human beings. But yes, I, thank you. I, I couldn't agree with you more. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Okay, Christina, thank you very much for your input. That was really insightful. Um, Again, Nancy, thank you. I've added your website and email address to um, to the chat. Also, you, everybody will be getting an email tomorrow with the recordings at 11 a.m. and there will be links to links to everything that's been discussed today and also some reading recommendations and there will be a link to get a discount on Nancy, Nancy's latest book in that email as well. So check check that out. And yeah, that's that's pretty much everything. Um, 
Nancy, I'm just going to talk a little bit about our next event here. So if you want to, if you want to get going and just enjoy the rest of your Sunday, it's super early for you there. So you've got a full day ahead, but thank you so much. It's been great. And we'll be in touch next week about uh, just getting all the sort of everything arranged. Okay. Thank you very much, Niall. I think I will take up your offer and go back to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thanks. See you Bye -bye soon. Bye-bye now.